to the Someone to Tell It To podcast today. This is the beginning of our fifth season. We uh, are thrilled to be back, and the guest we have today is so powerful, and we hope you will listen to the entire conversation um, because it it has an impact and an intensity, and um, as well as a gentleness that is comforting, you know, and soothing, and in the midst of turbulent, unsettled, difficult, painful, anxious times, we hope that you feel the way we feel and have felt since this conversation was finished, so that's peaceful and calm and helpful, uh, hopeful because there's a humanity that exists in this world that is it's it's our hope and the, our guest today our guest our guest today articulated that and exemplifies that so very well this is one of those episodes i know i'm going to come back to especially in turbulent times and i know this summer for those of you listening and know that we've been on a bit of a hiatus we did have some time to take a little bit of a, a hiatus a true hiatus away from from not just the podcast, but we were able to disconnect from things of someone to tell to you for a couple of weeks is really important for us to do. It's important for all of us to do that. Uh, we encourage you to take that time for yourselves, but it's also just good to re-engage too. I know I tried to tune out some of the news cycles while I was on vacation, and I know you did as well, which is also important to do, but it's also we want to be up to speed with what's happening in the world. Uh, we want to be addressing the things of the world and going to those places as we talk about in this conversation today, to those pain points that people are experiencing uh, to provide a sense of hope. And um, this is going to be a conversation I, I can't wait. August 2nd, when it, when it goes live, to be able to listen to it again. Can't wait for the world to hear. Yeah. So let's tell you just a little bit about Rabbi Ron Simmons. Rabbi Ron Simmons has been the Senior Director of Jewish Life since July of 2015 at the Jewish Community Center of Greater Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, and also the Founding Director of the organization's Center for Loving Kindness since August of 2017. Prior to these positions, he served as a rabbi, educational director, and faculty member in Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts, and Israel. He studied at the University of Albany, in the State University of New York System, Pace University, and Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, as well as Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and the Jewish Theological Seminary. He's a native of Lynbrook, New York, and his wife, Barbara Simmons, is also a rabbi. Together, they have three children, and uh, we're excited to share this conversation with you today. So enjoy. Rabbi Simons, we extend a warm welcome to you today. Uh, we want to thank you for joining with us in conversation as today we begin our fifth season of the Someone to Tell a Two podcast. And it's wonderful to have you as our first guest in this new season of, of this venture. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Thank, thanks for inviting me to be a part of the conversation. Absolutely. And we, we consider it a privilege to have you with us today. So this is the first question we'd like to ask you. Um, what or who were the influencers leading you f to become a rabbi and an educator uh, as you are today? 
I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, at the time, for the first five years of my life, my family was nominally Jewish, meaning we probably went for the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We had family traditions around Passover seders and Hanukkah candle lighting and whatnot. I remember one of my earliest memories is being, uh, uh, being at a nursery school and early childhood program at a JCC, at a Jewish community center. I remember uh, being wrapped in tinfoil to be the tin man for a performance of the Wizard of Oz and crying my whole way through it. But I don't remember any kind of significant uh, religious, spiritual experiences. Uh, the first significant Jewish memory that I have, and one of the earliest memories I have, is when my mother's dad died when I was three years old. Um, I don't remember much about him, but I remember this incident. Um, you and your listeners might be aware that after Jews die, the, uh, the mourners uh, sit shiva. They sit for a length of time, traditionally seven days, uh, in mourning where people can come in and gather with them and, and console them and offer opportunities to say prayers in the house. I remember after my grandpa Sam died that I wanted to kick everyone out of my house because I didn't want them there. Um, and that's really a, a foundational uh, memory of mine. But then if we fast forward a little bit, we moved from Brooklyn to Long Island, New York, only about 45 minutes away, but a, you know, a world of difference. And as I was growing up uh, at Temple Emanuel of Lindbrook, and as we were getting settled in, into that synagogue, my parents were trying to figure out where would they affiliate because it was the it was the 70s and you know that was the way that you connected with people by belonging to a congregation. And they went to one congregation and the rabbi told them everything that the congregation would do for them and for us, um, for our family. And then they went to a second congregation and the rabbi, Rabbi Harold Saperstein, uh, may his memory be a blessing, uh, told my parents what they could do for the congregation. And in that very John F. Kennedy kind of way, uh, my parents embraced that. Uh, both were educators uh, at times in their lives and uh, public school educators and really embraced that opportunity. And so my parents became the youth group advisors for a decade from the time that I was 15 until from the time that I was five until the time that I was 15. And as my brother and I grew into teenage years, they stepped away from it so that they could give us space. But I grew up every Tuesday night going to temple, not because Tuesday night's a holy night, but it was open lounge night, right? Uh, at, the, uh, at the youth lounge, right? At the temple. And I remember being the football uh, when the teens were playing football and being given baths by them in the bathroom sink. Um, and all the great the great fun uh, that I had as a child really centered around synagogue life. And so it was because of those early influences and then realizing that um, I had uh, an affinity for, uh, an interest in, and a little bit of skill at that time in helping to pass on traditions to younger kids. In fact, our religious school was all uh, taught by volunteers. And that was a big part of that ethos of what you can do for the synagogue. 
Um, so from the time I became a bar mitzvah at age 13, taking on adult responsibilities, I started to help. And that just seemed to work. And so I remember when I was 16 was the first time that I articulated to someone else. I was at a, a Jewish overnight camp, the, the Kutz uh, Academy, right up in Warwick, New York. And I remember standing in front of the infirmary and saying to one of my counselors, for the first time out loud, that I'd like to be a rabbi. And from that moment on, um, it really just it sat really well for me. And it was because of all the role models of the rabbis in my life. It was because of my parents' role modeling for us. And it was because of the community that we were a part of. All of my religious school teachers were either my parents or their friends. And so, you know, I was really raised into this warm, loving, uh, progressive uh, experience that felt right. And once I figured out that that's what I wanted to do with my life, it just all went in uh, essentially the straight line to get here. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of history there. We we say all the time that one of the goals of listening is just to know and be known. And we just want to know you better. We want our listeners to know you better and just to know a little bit more about your life story and who you are today. And we say all the time that so much of what happens to us as children influences who we are today. And so that history helps us know you better today. So thanks. And I, if I can add another piece to it, just, just knowing, uh, knowing your affinity uh, so I can also tell you that I grew up in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, not here in Squirrel Hill, where I'm now sitting, no more than 200 yards from where Fred prayed at Sixth Presbyterian Church. But in Brooklyn, New York, every afternoon, I would walk down to our neighbor's uh, house, Gloria, who was one of my dad's uh, co-workers at Bushwick High School, with carrot sticks in hand. And she would sit me in front of the TV and I would watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And uh, those, I actually have memories of that uh, as well. And uh, I think they were latent. And it's only now in my 50s that I've realized, wow, that, that really was a big part of my moral development. Wow. That, thank you for sharing that. That's a, that's a tremendous story, too. We appreciate that. We use Buzzsprout to create this podcast, and as a small nonprofit team, we really appreciate how easy they make it to get our guests' stories out into the world. With Buzzsprout, you get a beautiful podcast website, audio players to embed into other sites, detailed analytics, tools to promote your episodes, and so much more. Use the link in the show notes to get a $20 Amazon gift card when you sign up for a paid plan and to support our show. As the co-founders of Someone to Tell To, we often find ourselves traveling around between meetings and listening sessions, and we often don't really have time for the little things like grocery shopping. I'm sure many of you have had that experience when at the end of a long workday, you'd rather do anything else than shop for groceries. That's why we're happy to give our listeners the chance to get free delivery on your first Instacart order over $35. You'll get the products you love from your local stores in as fast as one hour. 
There's nothing quite like sitting down at the end of the day to be present for your family over a home-cooked meal, and takeout just doesn't feel the same. So if you find yourself needing groceries and considering getting takeout instead, get hand-selected products delivered straight to your door. Get free shipping on orders over $35 by using the link in the show notes. So just maybe you could bring us back to present day and describe some of the biggest and significant challenges that you're facing as a rabbi in the current climate that we find ourselves in. So I think that there are are two really big challenges. The first is the transition of the way that we gather as community. I believe that the models that we have been working off of in the religious community uh, across all religions across all denominations is a model that goes back to those 1970s, those 1980s, I'll even give it to the 1990s. Um, And it doesn't match a, a 2022 reality. And so we're trying to figure out how is it that we can bring our, uh, uh, our most precious values and ideas into the community conversation when people aren't necessarily uh, going to the places where those conversations used to happen. I'll give you an, an illustrative example of it. Several years back, I was driving through Ohio to go to a retreat for some teens. And as I was driving beautiful country roads, I made a right turn uh, at the corner of a church following my GPS to get there. And as I passed this beautiful white church, beautiful steeple, uh, I saw that there was a sign on the driveway to go into the parking lot that said, enter for service. And then about 10 seconds later, as I kept on driving past the church, there was another sign on the next driveway coming out of the parking lot, which said, exit to serve. Enter for service exit to serve. And I realized at that moment, um, what I what I knew is that one of the major goals of going to worship is to recharge your battery. And you know, we know that really well from these devices. You can't I'm holding up a I'm holding up an iPhone for those that are just listening. You can't just use it, use it, use it, and not plug it in at some point or put it onto the the cordless uh, charger for it. You've got to figure out how do you make sure that you have enough energy to keep you going and in communication even when you're not at your charging station. I think that sanctuaries are spiritual, moral, and communal charging stations. But the problem is that the delivery method nowadays is being challenged and questioned. And the pews are not being as well sat in as they used to be. So we have a responsibility as religious leaders, as spiritual leaders, as communal leaders, to figure out how do we take what was good, what is good in those settings, No matter what your faith tradition is, no matter what your denomination is, no matter what it used to look like as to how people used to gather, 
And of course, COVID has just accentuated this, right? And, and sped up the process of having to have this conversation. How do we take all that was good there and deliver it to members of the community so that they can be charged, so that they can go out and serve whatever that service means, whether it's social justice, whether it's morality, whether it's ethics, whether it's spirituality, whether it's compassion, whether it's enthusiasm, whether it's learning scripture, whatever it might be. How do we do that in a time when people aren't going to plug in in the ways that they used to plug in? So I think that that's one of the biggest challenges that, um, that we face as a religious community is how do we use the great tools that we have both inherited and that we are responsible for stewarding and bringing into the next generation. How do we do that when the models are changing? That's one challenge. The other major challenge that I think we have is as we get more bifurcated in uh, red versus blue, in Jewish versus Christian, in uh, native-born versus immigrants, and I can keep on going with those uh, with those dialectics. How do we actually live in community with each other? So for us here at the JCC of Greater Pittsburgh, in the Center for Loving Kindness and Civic Engagement, we know that there are three things that are going to help us to strengthen the fabric of community. The first one is we're gonna amplify the long held value of love your neighbor as yourself. We all know that that comes from the book of Leviticus, but we also know that it's at the core of what it means to live in community with each other. And along with that amplification of that verse, one that follows immediately following in, uh, in Leviticus is you shall not stand idle while your neighbor bleeds, whether that is literal bleeding or metaphoric bleeding. And, and we know that there is metaphoric bleeding in all kinds of ways. That we have a responsibility to amplify and to live out those values. And, and I can tell you through the thousands of conversations that we have had in the past five years since the establishment of the Center for Love and Kindness in 2017, no one has said, oh, that's so, that's so trite. How could you even focus on those things? We know that they're bedrock principles. We know that we need to be engaging with them. And that's actually why they're in the central book of the Hebrew Bible, of the Torah, right? In the central, a central section in the holiness code, right? Of Leviticus chapter, chapter 19. The third principle that goes along with that is that we have to redefine the word neighbor from a geographic term to a moral concept. Your neighbor isn't just someone that you live next to, it's someone that you feel connected to and that you feel a responsibility to. Um, I learned this concept first from Rabbi Joachim Prince, who in the 1960s had relocated to New Jersey after being a rabbi in Germany and having escaped the Holocaust. Uh, I never met him, of course, in real life. I've only met him through his teachings and his legacy. 
And uh, during the course of his career, he became good friends with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Such good friends and such good partners that on the day of the march in Washington, they asked Rabbi Prince to be the last speaker before King took the podium. And that's when he articulated that neighbor has been a moral concept in Jewish thought for thousands of years. And so we're trying to live that out as well. The second component to the work that we do at the Center for Love and Kindness is that we know that we have a responsibility to help neighbors to live in community with each other based on our shared humanity across real and perceived differences. And those differences for us here in Pittsburgh, and I'm sure they're not that different in other places as well, are around um, race and ethnicity and economic differences based on neighborhoods, that they are about um, blue and red differences. They are about police and clergy differences. They are about interfaith differences. They are about, why should I even care that something bad's happening to you? I can just be a, a bystander with that as opposed to being an upstander with it. And they're about helping people to understand that the opinion that I walk into a room with might not be the opinion that I keep forever, that I have to have an open mind to be able to understand other people's perspectives. So you ask, what are the two uh, biggest challenges? I think the first challenge is how do we deliver the product when the models are changing? And how do we live together in a bifurcated world? Thank you for all of that. Um, you've articulated very well and um, clearly what it is that you are about through the center and your work at the Jewish Community Center. We, and we, we appreciate that so much and resonate with it uh, very strongly. Uh, we all know that you know, we're living in unsettled, very unsettled times. There's just a lot of division, a lot of discord, a lot of disconnection. And that's why we're that's why we're in business, doing what we're doing, especially the disconnection part, trying to help to to you know people to learn how to listen to one another, to so that we can be more more intimately connected, more under you know more understanding with one another, more more willing to respect one another and realize that we are all, we all have value. We all have you know, purpose and meaning in this life. You have uh, been quoted uh, as saying um, that you've changed your language about, you know, it, with, within your work, with, within your role, you know, from the language of using the, the terms people of faith to people of hope. How did you come to this change, and where do you find your hope in a world of, of discord and disconnection and disagreement and disappointment? And you can, we can go on and on with those adjectives, but where do you find your hope? Well, th thank you for the, uh, for the, for the, the good research and the, and the quote, um, and it's true. Uh, when we began the Center for Loving Kindness, and civic engagement here at the JCC. It was during uh, the 2016 election that we began to think we need to be doing something. 
We need to be taking the values that this organization, the JCC, has embraced for 125 years uh, that guided us to be a, an innovative settlement house uh, to serve everyone, to help them come into community from our origins. And we need to figure out a new platform, a new delivery method for how it is that we can deliver that message and those values internally at the JCC and then also externally in the community at large, because if we're only focused in on ourselves, shame on us, right? We need to be working with everyone um, and, and bringing these values and articulating them and learning and living them with our neighbors. So at the very beginning, uh, back at that time in 2017 when we started, and I can tell you actually that our goal was to kind of have a soft opening of the Center for Love and Kindness, in September of 2017. And then uh, in August of 2017, you might remember that uh, the Unite the Right rally happened in Charlottesville. And I got, a, uh, I got a, an email from one of our thought partners here in town, uh, also a funding partner, who said, we know that you were going to have a soft opening, but you have to start now. You have to go deep. And so we did. And so the first event that we held was our own little March on Washington right here in Pittsburgh, knowing that not everyone was going to go down to commemorate the, the anniversary of the March on Washington. And what we did is uh, we had a sermon forum, right? We shared a, a passage from King's I Have a Dream. We shared a passage from one of Muhammad's last speeches. And we shared a passage from a rabbi of the turn of the 20th century at Road of Shalom here in Pittsburgh talking about social justice being as hard as climbing up Niagara Falls backwards uh, or from the bottom up. And we invited neighbors into that space, but instead of just having panelists share these passages, in between each passage, we put out a comment, a question, uh, a provocative question, uh, that would encourage people to be in conversation with their neighbors at their tables. And that began the model. And so we began to say, oh, this is great. We can have faithful conversations. And we did it around, uh, around Unite the Right rally. We did it around opioid addiction, around gun violence, around immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. And then what we came to realize is that even the term faithful can be understood as a block, as a stumbling block to those who say, wait a second, but I'm not religious. Now, faithful has a couple ways of understanding it. Faithful can be, oh yeah, I'm full of faith and I'm religious. Faithful can be that I'm into it, I'm, I'm connected to it, I'm, I'm committed to what we're doing you have me in good faith in this conversation. But it was being understood more as uh, perhaps the term is old world religion, faith, as opposed to being committed into it. And so after a year of engaging in those faithful conversations that were going really well, we decided let's change the name to hopeful conversations because no one, there's no stumbling block to hope. Everyone has some kind of hope and we know that hope is what helps you get to tomorrow, that maybe it's going to be a little bit better 
than it is today. It's a, you know, it's a community organizing principle that the world as it is today is not the world that I want tomorrow. By the way, it's also a very religious principle, right? That uh, in Judaism, uh, we use the phrase olam haba in Hebrew to talk about the world to come. The world to come, right, in, uh, in Jewish parlance uh, has two connotations to it. One is what happens after I die, which Jews are a lot more amorphous in our understanding of that than many Christians are. And then the second is olam haba, the world to come, is in the days of the Messiah, which, uh, of course, we have our differences between Jews and Christians, but we're all waiting for the Messiah to come, whether that's a first time or a second time. And, um, and that is that world to come is that long-term dream of what it's going to look like. But I would dare to say that I don't want to translate olam haba as the world to come. I want to use what I know from community organizing and translate it as the world yet to be. And the world yet to be happens right now. And it's going to happen now because of what we're willing to put into the experience of how we want to build out tomorrow. That's my sense of hope. And I know that if I just try to do that on my own, I will fail. But I know that if we try to do it together, if we join together in hope that the world can be less bifurcated, that spirituality can help inform the way that we engage with each other. Spirituality, I understand, is connectedness, connectedness to God, connectedness to each other in this generation, connectedness to past generations, connectedness to the future generations. If we do that together, well, we might stumble. We might not see the end goal, but we're going to get us a little bit closer to what's next. Um, Way back when, some 2,000 years ago, in the days of the rabbis, uh, Rabbi Tarfan said, uh, You are not required to finish the work, but you are not permitted to desist from it. You have to keep on going, even though the work is hard. And so the hope right, is that eventually the seeds that we plant are going to uh, flower and provide fruit for generations yet to come. I'd like to just for a minute come back to a phrase that you used earlier on in talking about the Center for Loving Kindness and Civic Engagement. And you, you used this purpose statement that you want to help people be upstanders and not bystanders. Yeah. And... I'd like to just learn a little bit more and I'm sure our listeners would as well about like in practical terms, what does that look like? Because I think most of us are probably more drawn to comfort and it's hard for us to step out and to, to not just stay on the sidelines. So I think I, I think I can, uh, I can best describe it by going back to an early experience I had in rabbinic school. I went to the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in New York. Uh, for some of that time, I was living in Queens, New York, which meant that I was taking the subway from Queens into Manhattan. And one day, I'm, I'm standing on the subway, making my way in, about a you know 35-minute ride or so, 
and I'm standing there reading scripture. I had a small Bible. In fact, I had this Bible with me, right? My, uh, you know, and it's all marked up in all kinds of stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in order to prepare for class. Um, and then all of a sudden, I see someone walking down in a stride down the, the subway car, right? And he's bumping into people and whatnot. And someone takes exception with him. And they begin to get at it. Right? And I'm thinking to myself, well, here I am. I've got scriptures in my hand. I've got Hebrew scriptures in my hand. Maybe I should step in and say, gentlemen, maybe I can resolve this for you. I should be the upstander. <laughs> and, you know, that was like a fleeting thought, right? Because I was like, what would I do, right? But I just didn't want to just stand back. By the way, as that story progressed, uh, the person that got bumped into flashed his undercover badge and the whole thing resolved very peacefully hmm. right so i didn't have to put myself in danger but that's the thing what does it mean to be an upstander what does it mean to say that i'm going to look at a situation where i see that there's someone in need where i see that i can be a part of a solution i can be a part of community and actually do something about it and so for us here at the Center for Loving Kindness, we've, uh, we've enlisted over 90 neighbors who said, yeah, I want to be on call for something. But it's not on call for the person that's bumped into necessarily on the subway. It's on call for the real challenging situations that we have when uh, natural disaster, when hate when systemic issues get in the way of people being able to self-realize, of communities being able to live in the way that they need to be able to live, like all of us have the right to live. And so over the course of the years, um, we have done a lot of different kind of work as upstanders. Uh, at the very beginning of COVID, you might remember that in order to get a vaccine, you had to register on a computer. Well, what about our neighbors here who live in the Hill District, sure. right, who don't have computers? The black community tends to be poor in that part of town. Well, we got on the phone with them. We had lists and lists in partnership with black-led organizations. And we called over 3,000 neighbors. And on phone calls, we're able to dictate to take dictation from them to get them registered. We did the same thing in other neighborhoods, not in registering people to get their vaccines, but greeting them with incredible joy when they came to get their vaccines, right? And you know what was amazing about that is people were walking into community centers across our region singing hallelujahs because they saw some light at the end of the tunnel. They saw some hope. And we wanted to be a part of that hope. When local churches say, you know, if only we can beautify our place, we have everything that we need to do it, but we just don't have the, we don't have the hand power to do it. We're there with them. When we receive new neighbors here in Pittsburgh from Afghanistan, and while it is that we're not qualified or certified 
to actually set up their apartments and things of that sort because of clearances, because of the State Department and all the right regulations that are needed to protect them. We reach out to our local resettlement organization, Jewish Family and Community Services, and say, what about that first week when our new neighbors are here? What are they going to eat? Are you going to serve them McDonald's? Is it going to be Kraft macaroni and cheese? Or can we figure out how to give them Afghan cuisine? And so we brought together Jews, Muslims, and evangelical Christians in order to learn from Afghan neighbors that were already here in Pittsburgh, what would be three real comforting dishes that we can make for them? And over the course of the past year, we've made well over 300 quarts of spinach and chickpea and string bean dishes that especially go to single men when they arrive in Pittsburgh, because perhaps they don't have culinary skills. They certainly don't have the acumen of, you know, how do you, how do you operate in America, you know, on such short notice in Pittsburgh on sh such short notice. And so that kind of work feels so right to say, we want to welcome you and we want to do it not in your face, but to give you something that's a taste of home to let you know that we respect where you came from. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Here in Pittsburgh, unfortunately, there was yet another shooting uh, in the Black community that touched all of us in such a horrific way because someone actually went on to a school bus and killed a child on a school bus. And so that school, the Oliver Citywide Academy, had to shut down for a couple of weeks in order to regroup and to figure out how do we, how do we deal with this on the north side of Pittsburgh? Well, in the course of those two weeks, there came a day, I think it was a Wednesday morning, one of the coldest days of February this year, when the teachers were expected to come back into school for the first time without the students. And we brought together people of all different faith traditions, about 30 of us or so, standing outside at 6 a.m. when teachers began to arrive at the school, holding posters that said, we love our school secretary as ourselves. Love your school bus driver as yourself. Love your school principal as yourself. Just to let them know that we care about them and we're grateful. Being an upstander in those very practical ways um, is another way of tapping into hope. If I can do something for you and that's going to help you 
and we know that at the same time, my helping you is helping me, then we're doing something right. You have said so much there. It is rich with meaning about loving our neighbors as ourselves, being upstanders in the community. And thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the example you're setting. Thank you for the inspiration you're giving because it, it's incredible. It, it, it really is. I want to make just a, a bit of a transition, but it's, it's related. Uh, uh, very much. Um, without a doubt, one of the most intense and heartbreaking issues facing our nation today is the prevalence of gun violence. You've already alluded to it as, as a, a, a recent shooting in Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, and all of the mass shootings as well that are, that are taking place. All of it, all of it is horrific. The Jewish uh, community of Pittsburgh uh, was affected very deeply by the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in October 2018 when 11 people were murdered. In, sadly, what is the, the worst anti-Jewish um, hate crime in United States history? Um, we can't even begin to imagine what that was like for your community. Can't begin to imagine what you must have felt like but we'd like for you to talk about that day, to talk about your involvement, to talk about how you were an upstander, how you loved your neighbors, um, how you felt, what it was like, and then ultimately what it's been like since then as you continue, as you, you and your community and continue to come to terms with that and to try to heal and find hope to yeah. be people of hope in the midst of something so horrific. Thank you. And, you know, and, and, and I, I want to acknowledge that the experience of October 27th, 2018 was a low frequency, unfortunately getting more frequent, but low frequency, high impact experience. And for so many of our neighbors, there are high-frequency, high-impact experiences that happen every day of their lives and that we need to acknowledge that um, these, these experiences, like a Uvalde, like a buffalo, and we just keep on going, I mean, those are the most, the most recent one, uh, that these garner the headlines, but there is so much, so much life that's disrupted that doesn't get to those headlines. And so we, we need to acknowledge that it's a big part of the learning for me over the course of these years. And, and please say whatever you like about that, anything more about that too, because that, Absolutely. that's I'll, very I'll, significant. I'll, I'll, I mean, I can tell you that on that day, on October 27th, it was a Saturday morning. Now, normally, um, faithful Jews are in synagogue on Saturday mornings. What was I doing? I was about to go to church. Ironic. Rabbi, Jewish, church? Well, there was an, an interfaith environmental seminar happening in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. And I was asked to present a Jewish perspective on it. And we thought that for the sake of building community, this would be a good thing for me to do, even on a Saturday morning. But wouldn't you know it, on Friday night, when I left here to go home, I had left my papers here at the JCC. 
And so I had to come back here to get my papers uh, before I went off to the church. And in so doing, at um, I believe it was 9.48 in the morning, I made a left turn from Braddock Avenue onto Forbes Avenue. And as I'm driving along Forbes to get here to the JCC, which is on Forbes Avenue, all of a sudden, I get overtaken by a police car and then a second one. And then when I get to Shady Avenue, the emergency vehicles start crossing the intersection. I pull into the JCC, I said, what happened? And I found out. We then became the community response center for the experience. Um, the FBI and uh, the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, the local government, the national government, the Israeli government, everyone who needed something um, came here and we set up a response. We, uh, we went into lockdown immediately. Um, we had people in the building and we said, you're welcome to leave, but we're not bringing other people in at this point. I remember uh, down the hall here, you know, we have glass doors. And so we put, uh, we put staff on the doors and one of those staff people who was on the door over here, while things were still active just five blocks away um, and not knowing, you know, what was, what, what the, the live time experiences were. One of those staff people took the phone, right, and kind of snuck into a, uh, a doorway so that he could be out of sight of in case there was more coming. And so to, just to have that sense of what I actually have to, I actually have to protect my life right at these moments is just horrific to think of. Sending those texts to my, my wife and kids that I'm okay, right? But I'm on lockdown here. And my wife, also a rabbi, was actually leading services and didn't know what was going on because she was leading services. But I found myself here that entire day up until late hours of the night because people began, once, once everything was settled, people began to come here. They knew this is where we were going to be able to get information and to be able to engage. During the afternoon, um, we gathered some of the leaders of the Jewish community and the city, and we said, what are we gonna do? Like, we, we need to bring people together. We need to give people hope. And so we began to plan out what would happen the following day at Soldiers and Sailors Hall, where, I don't know what it was, maybe 10,000 or so people came together for one of those horrific moments of, we've gotta, we've gotta pray, we've gotta have a vigil. And because not only had we been so deep into the interfaith work here at the Center for Love and Kindness already for 14 months, but because of decades of interfaith leaders being in relationship with each other, we knew exactly who to call. Um, even in a city that is defined by its neighborhoods and limited in its interactions because of its neighborhoods, the interfaith spiritual leaders have always talked well together. So we were standing on the shoulders of giants right in the midst of that. And so it was actually easy to put together. Easy is maybe the wrong word, but it, 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 we knew who to call in order to figure out how do we get a Black Baptist choir to give us comfort? How do we get Muslim and Christian and Jewish leaders to be with us? How can we create the possibility 
of having over a hundred spiritual leaders invited up onto the stage to stand behind the three spiritual leaders of those congregations when they offered their words. And so all that kind of flowed well. That was the work of the afternoon to figure out how do we make that happen for the next day. But still there was work to be done here. And so because of the because of, 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 of the size and the time of the experience, we already knew who had been killed because we knew who was there and we knew who came out on their own. And just the sitting with people and seeing that pain and understanding that reality without confirmation was incredibly difficult to do. I can tell you that my office here, which at the time was a conference room, uh, was the place where we sat down probably at around six or seven o'clock at night on that uh, on that day on October 27th. And imagine there was a, you know, a long table here and on the right side over here, the coroners sat. And on the left side over here, the presidents of the congregation sat and the JCC leadership was standing against the wall. And the coroner said, we're not gonna be able to release the bodies for 48 hours. And the president said, no, no, we know who they are. You need to do this now. And they insisted and it happened. And it happened in such a way so that we were all gathered, the community was gathered in one of our social halls. And it was just, it was, it was crazy. I, I mentioned earlier about Shiva, right? That happens after the funeral, the consolation. Well, this was a backward Shiva because there was no funeral yet because we didn't have official notification and we were all just holding space with each other. And while we were holding space with each other, an FBI agent would come out and tap a family on the shoulder and have them come in here. Right? And that work of, of notifying them happened here, which is one of the reasons why I'm so um, spiritually fulfilled having this now as my office, knowing what's happened in this room, uh, even at, at, at the darkest of times. And then how do we build on that to go to hope? I can also tell you <clears throat> that one of the roles that I play in the community is I serve on the Hevra Kedisha, the burial society. And uh, Jewish burial traditions are very, uh, are very simple. Um, we, um, we like to cleanse our people in water. We like to purify them with water. We dress them in shrouds. And we like to um, put them into plain pine boxes before burial. Um, so you can imagine we had some work to do right, um, in following the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue building. And so on that Monday night, 27, 28, the 29th, right, was when we began to do our work. Uh, because you know, we were there was a little bit of a delay because of the coroner. And as I'm getting ready to go into the back room of the funeral home, um, I'm changing into my scrubs to, to go in there. And all of a sudden I hear a knock on the outside door. I got to tell you, I was a little freaked out. Um, it was nighttime. I was in the back of a funeral home and I had just been close to the deadliest anti-Semitic attack 
in American history. So I didn't know what to do. But all of a sudden, I saw a funeral director come towards me, uh, who I'd never met before. And I said to her, someone's knocking on the door. And she said, well, why don't you open it? And I said, it's not my building. You open it. <laughs> and she had to disengage the alarm system, which was a folding chair propped up into the, into the knob. So she took that away, opened up the door. And there was uh, a little old lady who thrust $1,000 in cash in our faces and said, these are for the married couple. Please make sure they have a good funeral. And we said, what's your name? She said, no names. We said, can we hug you? She said, no hugs. And she just disappeared into the night. We closed the door, we re-engaged the alarm system, the chair back up in there. I look at this funeral director, again, who I had never met before. We're holding $1,000 in cash and we just hug each other and weep for five minutes. Because even at our darkest moments, there is hope and inspiration. There is goodness that comes after bad. And so, I mean, that, that those, those two reflections, you know, they, they just, they just, I hope they, they impress upon people that the depth of pain is incredible and the depth of hope is uplifting. And now when we begin to put it into the context of gun violence and the like, so I also remember that on the Thursday following, you know, things are kind of beginning to get settled down, although all of our offices have been taken over by these outer agencies doing really good work, right, and really helping us and helping families and survivors and the like. Um, I'm sitting in my office with a few colleagues from the JCC, and as it had turned out, about three weeks before, in order to celebrate Yom Kippur, which again, this goes back to our previous conversation about delivery methods of religion and spirituality. We don't do services here at the JCC, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year. We did a project called High Holidays of Hope, where we wanted to focus in on one aspect of what the High Holidays can mean, what Yom Kippur can mean. And a part of Yom Kippur is about renewal and hope. And so we turn to two of our neighbors, to Geraldine Massey, who lives in Hazelwood, just eight minutes down the hill, but a world apart. Not the affluence of Squirrel Hill, but the poverty and the challenges of a forgotten Black community. And we asked her to help us understand how did she rebuild her life after her two adult sons, were both killed by guns within 40 days of each other. And she talked about how her work as a social worker and as a, as a, a grief counselor, right, is what gives her hope. And then we looked to the east, to Wilkinsburg, right, also eight minutes away and a world of difference, to Rabbi Janet Helner Burris, who was the head of the Sanctuary Project in Wilkinsburg, and asked her, how did the community rebuild after the Franklin Avenue massacre, where five family members were gunned down as retaliation 
in their own backyard as picnic after uh, during a picnic. And she talked about how we keep on building hope. And they were our teachers on Yom Kippur to help us understand that. And so on that Thursday, Geraldine was sitting with us and Pastor Tim Smith was sitting with us and someone from the U.S. Attorney's Office was sitting with us, another black uh, member of the community. And one of the teens from the community, a black, from the black community, was sitting with us. And they were helping us understand what does it mean to have to deal with sudden death in horrific ways, in the way that we were dealing with it, based on their lived experience. And MS Truth, right? As we're having this conversation, I get a knock on my door, and it's this small framed uh, rabbi from somewhere in, uh, I think it was Allentown, who knocks on the door out of compassion and says, I'm here to help, what can I do? And I'm sitting here having this conversation, being educated about how do you deal with pain and suffering that again for us is low frequency, but high impact, but is high frequency, high impact, right? For so many others on a regular basis. And it was like, it was surreal because he had a, he had a, a, a folio of the Talmud, the ancient Jewish wisdom. And I didn't know what to tell him to do. So I said, please, you came here, you have your, your, your sacred text, go over there and study. And maybe that'll help. But I knew that I had to be in with my teachers with my neighbors, with the people who had such compassion for us from the black community, because there is so much pain, systemic pain that happens there that they were able to teach us. And I think that that experience of being in that conversation with them was an eye-opening way for me to understand what does compassion actually mean? What does neighbor actually mean? It's not that when I'm an upstander, I'm helping those poor folks. It's that when I'm an upstander, I'm helping all of us. It's not that when I have compassion for those poor folks, I have compassion for everyone. And as Reverend Tim Smith so clearly helped me to understand in the aftermath of the murder of George Smith, uh, of uh, George Floyd, when the Jewish community, when the Jewish house was on fire, we all came with our hoses and we asked you, where should we point? And when the black house is on fire, you all got to come with your hoses and we'll tell you where to point. And that's what we need to be doing, whether it's about gun violence or about any other tragedy or any other circumstances that are impacting community in a way that you can't imagine. How do you find tomorrow in that? We have to come ready to serve, but we have to come ready to serve in a way that's going to be helpful, guided by the people that are in need. There's so much there that we'd love to talk with you further about. And uh, at some point, we're going to have to travel down to Pittsburgh and meet you face to face just to spend some extended time together. Um, but here at Someone to Tell To, one of the things that's really important to us is, I mean, we're an organization devoted to listening. We think that that is one of the ways that we provide a sense of hope um, and comfort. 
And in fact, we're in this conversation today for our listeners because of a mutual friend who was affected by a potential shooting here in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, right outside our window on Front Street uh, on July 4th of this year, 2022. And uh, we just happened to be in our office. We work in a co-working space that day and we engaged him in conversation. And then he told us about his experiences with this potential shooting. It turned out to not be a shooting, but um, you know, long story short is there was a, a fight that broke out here in Harrisburg and somebody yelled sh- like a shooter and everybody scrambled and it was the night of the fireworks and uh, he was a bystander to that event. But um, here at Someone to Tell To, we've increasingly been listening and hearing more and more stories of people who have been affected by shooting, by, by shootings. And uh, I know there's a, a philosopher that once said that uh, listening is so close to being loved that most people can't tell the difference. And we find that one of the ways that we're loving our neighbors and uh, we just implore it upon everybody to be about the work of hearing each other's stories because it's one of the primary ways we think of, of showing love to our neighbors. And uh, it removes a lot of the barriers that you're talking about and the things that keep us separated. Because if there's one thing, especially in the world that we're in right now, that um, is universal, it's, it's universal pain that we're all experiencing. And, and one of the ways that really draws us closest together is entering into each other's pain and brokenness and fears. And um, I just love to hear just uh, from you how you see listening as a potential way forward. It's, it's a great question. And I can go back to Hazelwood for this. Some of the work that we do is about helping police officers and clergy, spiritual leaders, see each other as human beings. We do that very systemically, right, zone by zone, in partnership with the police. Um, It's a part of the work that we did in the police reform task force in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And what this looks like is, you know, we sit in in a church basement and we simply talk to each other. And I remember being in Hazelwood back in the winter, and um, we were at Tim Smith's church in, uh, in the main room there, having some breakfast together. And one of the elder black pastors of the neighborhood um, said, you know, I owe my life to the police. He said, tell us. He said, when I was growing up in this neighborhood, and I wasn't necessarily on the right path, and I had lifted something from a store, the police officer decided to bring me to my father's porch as opposed to the police station. And that changed my life. Because if he had brought me to the police station, I would have gone down a path that would not have gotten me here. And so as a result of that early experience in my life, I am willing to give grace to police officers when they might overstep with a young black man. Thinking to myself, what? Really? I'm just like overwhelmed that, that that early story can help him understand that there are so many pressures that police have. And so I turned to the police sitting at the table in fact, to one of the commanders who's black. 
And I said, Commander, this pastor just said he's willing to give police grace. When are you willing to give community grace? And the next hour was about how we give each other grace, just listening to each other. And, you know, grace is such an important concept is that, you know, I'm willing to accept you for who you are and not to make assumptions about you. And in Jewish tradition, uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the mornings when we say our prayers for peace, we ask for chen, grace, chesed, loving kindness, virachamim, and mercy. We ask God to give us Grace, loving kindness, and mercy. Why wouldn't we be willing to give that to our neighbors in our attentive listening, as well as in the way that we interact with each other? Thank you. Thank you. Grace, loving kindness, and mercy. Those words, um, I think, are kind of a beautiful way to end this conversation today. Um, thank you for being with us. Thank you for sharing all that you do, sharing from your experience, sharing from your heart, um, sharing from your understanding of hope uh, for the world. And um, we appreciate it so much. It's been a privilege to listen to you to be in this conversation with you and to have you share for what we hope is the world, um, a message that does bring hope um, to us all. Maybe we could just real quick end our time together by asking one simple question. What's giving you hope right now in your life? And that will end our conversation. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go very personal now. We haven't spoken about my family, right, except on, on that day of October 27th. Um, my hope comes from the love that we share. My hope comes from our collective drive to take the values that we know are so important and for Barbara and I to continue the work that we do in our own respective realms of community to make that happen. But even more importantly, I can't wait to see 10, 15, 20 years from now as our kids uh, grow into their middle ages as Jewish professionals. Uh, they're, they're all in some form of Jewish communal leadership or training for that, to see how they figured out how do we recharge these things, whatever they look like 10 or 15 years from now. How do they recharge them? Using all the great wisdom that we've been given from tradition so that it can work not just in the year 2022, but in the year 2040 and 2050 and 2060 and beyond. That's where my hope is. And I'm, uh, I'm uplifted by the opportunity to be in conversation with you. And um, I'm grateful. Peace to you. Ron, <laughs> Rabbi Simons, thank you for being with us today. You... Um, you've been very inspiring and um, we know everyone who listens to this conversation will feel the same way too. 
So thank you. Thank well, you, very you, much. you guys are doing such a good service by helping people to listen to each other. And I, I think that's, it's so good. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining us for today's episode. We um, are so happy to be back with season five here to share this episode with you. We know that you've been encouraged by listening to it today as we were. We, uh, we mentioned earlier on in the, in the conversation that we can't wait to hear this one over and over again because it's just going to keep us grounded. It's going to keep us centered in a world where we don't always feel centered. We need conversations like this one. Mm-hmm. And in, um, in a year, it's just been turbulent here in the United States, but, but also around the world with so many issues, war, um, economic hardship, um, a virus that that's that still continues, um, hatred, death, destruction. Um, you know, we could we could go on and on. It, we need. I just say this. I think we've needed conversations like this. We've needed conversations with people who exemplify hope for the world, loving kindness, mercy, peace. And um, we're just so grateful, Rabbi Ron, for uh, joining with us today. And we hope that you are grateful for being able to watch and or listen to this conversation and, and hope, as, as Tom said, that it, that it can center you and help you feel hopeful uh, in what, you know, maybe some, some uncertain, unsettled, turbulent times for you, too. So thank you once again for joining us as we begin this new season. And um, uh, we, we look forward because we've got some, some other guests who uh, we are lining up uh, that w- who we know will, will also be inspiring and um, will help us to feel hope for the, for the days, the, the weeks, the months, and the years to come. So until we listen again. <laughs>